If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, the scripture we're looking at is printed in your bulletin. It's not printed in your bulletin. That was my fault, actually, so I don't know why I acted so surprised just now. I knew it wasn't in there. So there are some days in this church where we're going to ask you to bring your Bibles, and we're going to make you feel it if you don't have them. So how about that? That's a nice uh, way to cover my tracks there. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. And so uh, this, again, is the beginning of a new series. And so listen. Listen, friends, this is God's word. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself as one approved to God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity." This is God's Word. Okay, as we think about this series, um, responding to opposition, it's just a statement of fact that we all experience opposition. And often it's opposition to what we believe. Right? There's a significant part of our culture uh, that, that sets itself against Christianity. Right? And we feel this. A, uh, uh, people discredit Jesus, they discredit the Bible, they discredit other Christians. Right? And Christianity is described often, or sometimes it's just sort of assumed that it is, outdated, unenlightened, and in some places it's even dangerous. Right? This is what the message is that, that comes to us from a significant part of our culture. Um, Christians get marginalized, and the question we want to ask ourselves is, how does the gospel teach us to respond to this kind of opposition? Now, opposition is also prevalent in ways in our lives that are, that are even closer to home also. Because in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, with family, coworkers, friends, in our relationships, we also experience opposition and conflict in our relationships. Um, I want to show you a video that sort of helps frame in our minds how challenging opposition can be for us. Do we have sound? Let's start this over. No sound? Okay. All right, we've had enough of you. Okay. If you have ever had a friendship that means something to you, then you understand what opposition can be like. Right? If you've been married for any length of time, you understand what opposition looks like in relationships. If you have children, right, you understand what opposition and conflict can feel like. Right? If you've been in a dating relationship that hasn't worked out, you understand what opposition and conflict are like. If you work with anybody who's not Jesus, 
And in the workplace, you understand what opposition and conflict feels like. And the question for us is, when we experience this kind of opposition and conflict, how does the gospel teach us to respond? What San Diego needs, okay, what our city needs is a growing number of people who can see and display Jesus' reaction to opposition. The reason that I'm preaching this next series is because our city needs a growing number of people who have both the courage of conviction combined with a sacrificial love. Are you with me? San Diego needs a growing number of people who have both a, a firmness of conviction, a courage of conviction with sacrificial love. That's what brings healing and reconciliation in the midst of opposition. We need people who are confident and gracious. Okay, confident and gracious um, toward opposition. These folks are surprising when you see them, and they are transforming to interact with. And so this series, through 2 Timothy verse four, chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 3, verse 9, this will teach you both to be confident and gracious, and this is what we're going to learn. Um, we're going to learn first discernment. That's what we're going to talk about today. What's the real issue? Second, repentance. That change starts with you. Third, community. That you're not supposed to do this by yourself. Fourth, we're going to learn about boundaries. What is your job and what's not? Fifth, damage. What's at stake if we aren't people like this? And then always and in every message, we're going to see the gospel and the difference that the gospel makes. And so this series is going to be transformative for us as a church as we interact with each other, um, again, in our homes, our, fam- our workplaces, and our neighborhoods. And so these verses begin in verse 14 with the phrase, remind them of these things. <clears throat> remind them of these things. So Paul is telling Timothy, in the midst of opposition, you need to remember, you're, you're to be discipling other people. Okay, you're to be making disciples. The them, when he says remind them, these are the faithful men from verse 2. When Paul says, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so for us, it's similar. In the midst of our lives, we need to be making disciples. We need to be focused on helping other people to know Jesus, to follow him, to see him and display him. Um, And so we need, in order to do this, for us personally and for the people that we are discipling, we need to remind them of things. Okay, we need to remind them of things. We need consistent exposure to God's truth. Okay, we all need consistent exposure to God's truth. That's why Paul says, remind them. Remind them. Now, why do we need this? It's because we forget. Okay, there's things that we know that we forget. We forget what's important, and we can get tangled up in all manner of kinds of other things. And so Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. So it kind of ratchets it up a little bit. It's not just that you're reminding them of truth, but you are charging them in the presence of God. And so you have to remember that discipleship brings you and the person that you're meeting with, talking with, um, working with, it brings the both of you not just together with each other, but you actually come together in the presence of God. That's what discipleship does. It's a chance to remind each other of things before God, in the presence of God. 
And so on this issue of reminding, um, on f- this last Friday morning, <clears throat> Ryan and I were reading the Bible as the day was getting started. And Ryan just said to me, he said, I hate it when other people remind me of things that I already know. Ryan's eight and a half. This happens quite a bit. And I said, well, you know, the Bible actually says that we all need to be reminded, even of things that we already know, because there's stuff that we learn, and it gets into our head, but then it kind of falls back into the back of our head. Um, And so reminding kind of, you know, helps us with that. And Ryan's like, oh, wait a minute. Do you mean, Dad, that when we share with each other, we're like a fan that's blowing the truth from the back of our brains to the front? I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. (laughs) And thank you. I just got an illustration for Sunday. You're the best. Um, But that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy, right? When he says, remind them of these things. Remind them and charge them before God. He's saying, like, remind them. Bring the truth, not just, yeah, they know it, but bring it to the front of their minds. And so, friends, this is what Sundays are supposed to be about, Right? Yes, we are offering worship to God. We are telling him how much we love him. We are doing things that show him that he is first in our lives. And at the same time, we come, you should be coming expecting to be reminded of truth that will come back to the front of your brain and change you and transform you. Right? This is what our city Bible reading is for. Right? This is why we encourage you to practice private worship daily. Right? When you spend time with God, um, when you go through city Bible reading, and that's designed to bring truth, yes. I mean, if you've been around the church for a while, there are still things to learn. There's all kinds of things to learn. But in some ways, the biggest things that help the most are things that you get to a place where you kind of know what they are. And now, reading the Bible is being reminded consistently of those things that are most important. Right? So that's what Sundays are about. It's what, it's what our daily private worship is, is about. It's what our life groups are for. Right? And so we need to come expectantly. We need to come to be reminded of God's truth so that it can be fanned into the front of your mind to change you. And I think we need this fanning to the front of our minds, especially in response to opposition. Okay? Especially in response to opposition. It is so difficult when we're in the midst of a conflict, to remember what's important, isn't it? Right? I mean, we get defensive, we get emotional, we get argumentative. um, And so what is it that we're to remind each other of? Right? What do we need to be reminded of? Where do we begin? Where do we go first? Well, Paul tells Timothy. Okay? And so here's the first blank in your outline if you want to take notes. Paul says to Timothy first, this is a summary of these verses. He says, don't focus on the opposition first. Don't focus on the opposition first. Okay, so first and foremost, don't focus on the opposition. When opposition arises, if you focus first on the opposition itself, typically you end up becoming just like the opposition. Okay, if it comes at you hard, you're going to respond hard. If it comes at you inappropriately, you're going to respond inappropriately. Right? And, and the Proverbs teaches us about this. Proverbs 26.4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Okay, so if someone comes to you who is, is either a fool, or sometimes we may not be fools in the biblical sense, but we are acting foolishly. But if someone comes at you foolishly, don't respond according to their folly 
or you will be like them. And so when this happens, when we sort of respond in kind, we get distracted, right? And we lose out. We're not like soldiers. Remember the last series? We're not like soldiers who are focused on the mission and don't get involved in civilian affairs, right? We're not like the athletes who are supposed to be competing according to God's rules. We're now competing according to the rules of the world, right? The rules of the opposition. And you've had this experience, I'm guessing, Um, If you ever had an argument with someone and you won the argument and then when you left you realized that it didn't actually do you any good? You realized that, yeah, you were right and they were wrong, but now your relationship is worse than when it started? Uh, Or more significantly, now they are farther away from Jesus than when you started? This is really challenging, especially when it comes to talking about Christianity, especially when we're talking about the gospel. Um, Because we enter in thinking like we have things that we want to share, things we want to say, and when the opposition comes, conversations quickly devolve into talking about everything else. Right? I remember um, scheduling a seven-week period with somebody um, to go over. We're just doing Christianity Explore. We're going to explore Christianity together. And we had seven weeks set aside we were going to do this. And 15 weeks later, we were still talking about minutiae. We were still talking about like all these different things. And, and I felt like I was put into a, a place where I had to justify myself. I had to defend God and then defend the whole history of Christianity. Right? You ever feel that way? Um, this is what happens to us. And, and it's not that the questions that get asked are, are not important to deal with. But what happens is, there are answers to all these questions, but sometimes we spend so much time on these other issues that we don't end up able to focus on the thing that's most important. You with me? You know that phrase, you know, which hill do you want to choose to die on? You have thought about that as like, we spend so much time on the hill of being right or on the hill of having intellectual answers to the objections of Christianity. And meanwhile, the gospel hill is over here being overrun, right? Because no one's standing on this hill. But this is what happens when we focus first on the opposition. This is what was happening to Timothy, and it was a constant subject of Paul's letters. So not just this one here, but even in his first letter, look at these verses, um, in 1 Timothy 1, this is the first letter Paul wrote to Timothy, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he said, Charge certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Chapter 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Right? So we're seeing some of the same language as in 2 Timothy 2, which means that Timothy is still needing to be reminded himself of these things. 1 Timothy 6, verse 4, talks about these folks, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And in our passage, um, Paul says, don't quarrel about words in verse 14. In verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent babble. And there's lots that can be said about the kind of of false teaching that was going on, the kinds of things that Timothy was being subjected to. Um, But essentially, uh, people wanted to discredit Timothy. 
Okay, Timothy was the pastor of this church in Ephesus. That's where he is when Paul's writing to him. And people wanted to discredit him so that they could set themselves up as leaders. And the focus on genealogies um, and things about the Old Testament laws, they were actually designed to remind Timothy and others that Timothy wasn't really Jewish. Okay? We've looked at this, in the, in the, I guess, a few months ago. But in Acts 16, it says that Timothy's mother was a Jew, but his father was a Gentile. And so in the first century, that was enough for people to say, you know what, Timothy should not be teaching in the church. Jesus was Jewish. Timothy's only a half Jew, and that's half bad. And so he should not be teaching. And so for Timothy, this was a struggle for him. This was part of, I think, what, um, what made him question his calling, made him question himself as a teacher. And so part of Paul's encouragement to Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God that's in him, to be true to his calling, was because Timothy doubted himself. He doubted himself. And so this was a personal attack at times on Timothy. And then there was also um, the, the idea of myths and the irreverent babble. These were false teachings that contradicted the Bible. Right? So people would take some of the Bible stories um, and then use the Bible stories but then add to them. Okay, and there's all kinds of ways that this was done. But a good modern-day example of the myths um, and the irreverent babble would be like the Noah movie that came out a few months ago. Right? If you saw the movie, you'd say, well, okay, so there was a boat and there was a flood and there was a guy named Noah. But after that, seems like they went in a different direction than the book. Um, and, and that happens with every movie that's coming from a book. But, um, but that would be a good example, right? It's loosely, loosely based on the Bible. But there was so much added to it that flat out contradicted the Bible's teaching. That's what was going on, where people were setting themselves up as teachers of the law, and they'd tell you a story, and then they'd fill in the gaps. And the conclusion of their story was the opposite of what was meant for, uh, you know, what God intended. And Paul is saying that this kind of teaching, it causes incredible harm. Right? He starts off by saying in verse 14, this does no good, which <laughs> seems kind of like an understatement, right? It does no good. So you see, starting out slow, but then he's building. He says in verse 14, it ruins the hearers. Right? This teaching ruins the hearers. In verse 16, he says it leads people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk. This, these myths, these genealogies, this irreverent babble, these wars about words, it spreads like gangrene. So the teaching had the effect in the church and the effect on people's lives as gangrene. Right? Gangrene is infected decay in your flesh that rots you away from the outside in. That's what gangrene is. Okay, infected decay that rots your flesh. And in Paul's mind, the church is the body of Christ. Right? This is the body of Christ. These are the hands and feet of Jesus. And because of this false teaching, because of discrediting Timothy, because of making stuff up and not sticking with what the scriptures actually say, these people are destroying the church. They're destroying God's people. And he brings up two people. He names them. It's kind of a big deal, right? If you were at Ephesus and you were Hymenaeus or Philetus, like you got named here. He says they've swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. 
And so what the false teaching there is, isn't that Jesus has already been raised, because that was true, but, he, but saying that the resurrection, there is no more resurrection. Okay? Biblical teaching is that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, and in the future, everyone who trusts in Jesus will also be bodily raised from the dead and will inherit, not heaven, but will inherit a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, our future, what we're looking forward to is not disembodied spirituality, but it is an earthly perfected experience here where we can celebrate and experience the goodness of what God has made, the beauty of what God has made. And so these folks were saying, no, 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 no. No, there is no resurrection in the future. And what they were doing was they were saying, some of the things they were saying was, so what you do in this life doesn't matter. Because it's just flesh. It's just your body. And your body's going to burn. It's going to go away. And so it doesn't matter what you do in it. Which is a denial of the resurrection. It's a denial. Jesus was bodily raised. His body is up in heaven. And it's out of place. Because heaven is a spiritual realm. And bodily Jesus does not belong in heaven. He belongs on earth. And he's coming. He is coming. And when he comes, he will raise all of us up from the dead. And those who don't know him will be raised to condemnation, but those who do know him will be raised to eternal embodied life on earth in a perfected version of this world, in a perfected version that is consummated and glorious and wonderful. And in that day, heaven and earth will be one. Heaven and earth will come together uh, in God's like climactic intention for all of creation. And so to deny this, to deny this led into asceticism. It, de- it, it, de- it denied the goodness of the world. People began to get restrictive about foods and what they were supposed to eat or what they couldn't eat. Some people were abandoning the Bible's teaching on marriage and saying marriage isn't relevant anymore. Some people were even saying children are irrelevant because of this idea that the physical is evil. And so there was Jewish asceticism, there was Gnosticism, if you're familiar with those terms. That, and what happened was people were losing their faith. They were losing their faith. And, and obviously there are bits of truth in what they were saying, because we are truly spiritually raised from the dead. When we believe in Jesus, we do experience a spiritual resurrection, but it's just the beginning of what we will experience in the future. But these folks were harping on the spiritual resurrection and then turning it in a way that was driving people actually away from Jesus. So that some people, it says in verse 18, um, actually were leaving the faith, leaving their faith in Jesus. And so what we see here is there's a content piece to the false teaching, but there's also a method piece, right? There's a method piece of this opposition, Right? Paul says, don't quarrel about words. And, and, and the quarrel about words, it's literally don't use war words. Like, don't use your words to war on others. Right? So this isn't just what you're talking about, but it's how you're talking. And so it's not just the what that was wrong, but the how. These folks were warring with their words. Okay? In medieval England, right, when the crossbow was invented, the dart that would fly from the crossbow was called a quarrel. It was called a quarrel. And it's because, or I guess, and, and, and what this quarrel did was it would fly across the battlefield with mortal intent, with an effort to kill the enemy. 
That's what a choral was. And so quarreling then, as now, had no better goal than to destroy the opponent. So this quarreling about words, um, it's about intention, right? It's about what you're aiming for, right? For these folks, their objective wasn't to educate, it wasn't to inform or to edify uh, or to assist uh, the opposition to achieve a better understanding of righteousness, destruction and ruination were the willful and purposeful endpoints. Okay? This is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Don't go to war with your words. Right? How you say it is as important as what you're saying. So fighting, quarreling, it's the activity where two people are attempting with purpose and will to injure each other. Right? Do you know where this is going? Right? How often? How often? when you are in a disagreement with someone, how often when you're responding to opposition, uh, is there part of you that is invested in hurting someone else, in getting back at them? And and sometimes you feel justified, right? Because sometimes you feel like you've been beat into a corner and you need to fight your way out. Right? So we understand that, but, but this is warring about words and Paul is telling Timothy, don't do it. Don't focus on the opposition first because you will become like it, both in what you say and how you say it. This is what Paul is telling Timothy uh, to avoid. And for us, so we need to understand this, this doesn't mean that you can't have discussions about the Bible. Right? This doesn't mean that you don't study the Bible, that you don't look at the words of the Bible. This doesn't mean that you don't study the genealogies in the Old Testament. Right? It doesn't mean that. Um, in fact, that's exactly what we should do. Okay? And if we do that right, then we won't be guilty of this kind of interaction. And so, the first point is don't focus on the opposition first. What should we do? What we should do is focus first on God. So focus on God first. This is what Paul says to Timothy in verse 15. Verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So this phrase, do your best, it could also be translated be quick or be eager. Okay, so it's like when opposition comes, do this first. Right, he's saying be quick. First, he says go to God. Go to God. He says do your best to present yourself to God. So what this means is you're supposed to go to God first before you go to the opposition. Okay, go to God first before you respond to the opposition. And he says, go to God as one approved. So you want to go to God and get his approval on what you are going to do and say. Okay, get God's approval before you respond. And he describes as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, right, uh, has no need to be ashamed. So this is like the worker who at the end of the day, the foreman comes and he's, expecting, he's inspecting the work and the worker is just there standing like, yeah, check it out, right? And the foreman's got questions. Well, what did you do? How about this? How about this? How about this? And the worker's like, hey, just check it out. Like, see what I've done. He's not ashamed. He has no need to be ashamed. Um, he sees his work and he is satisfied because he's done a good job. What Paul is saying here is, Go before God before you engage in opposition 
and get his approval before you go. Okay? This is what he's aiming at. Now the question is, how do we do that? Right? In the midst of opposition, how do we do that? Well, the verse tells us. He says, be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, comma, rightly handling the word of truth. So you need to rightly handle God's word of truth. So Paul thinks the Bible is the word of truth. Right? So this is God's word of truth. This brings truth into any situation, into every situation, but we need to handle it rightly. Okay, We need to rightly handle the word of truth. And this, this word, rightly handle, um, it's interesting. There's our, there, there, it gives us a really good picture. Um, this word of rightly handle is describing, or, or it's used to describe the process of trying to cut your way through an overgrown forest. Okay, so if you think about um, like trees, dense trees, bushes, think about like blackberry bushes that have thorns and brambles and stuff, and you have to make your way through it. And so rightly handling is also translated in other places like cutting a straight path through. Okay, so it's like blazing a trail. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying that you can use God's truth to cut to the center and the real issues in the opposition. Okay? You can use, what you need to do is you need to use God's truth to be able to get to the heart of what the real issues are. And so when we do this, when we do this, um, we're going to see, so we'll talk more specifically about how, but this, this, this means asking the question, what are the truths of the Bible that would help me understand this opposition? What, what does the Bible teach that would teach me how to respond in this conflict? Okay? Um, what is the truth? And then how does Jesus teach me not just what to say, but how to say it? Right? And so this idea of rightly handling the truth is that we need to get not only to the Bible, but we need to also get to the gospel. We need to get to the Bible for the what, and we need to get to the gospel for the how. Right? And as we see Jesus. And so um, some of this is praying for wisdom. Saying, God, please teach me. Give me your wisdom to know how to respond to this situation. It means looking up verses. And whether you search for them on a concordance or if you ask a friend or an elder or a pastor or someone in your life group, hey, do you know any verses that talk about this kind of opposition? Right? Sometimes the Bible has specific teaching that directs to your situation. Sometimes there are stories in the Bible that are similar enough to your story where you would know, oh, hey, this is how God's people did it then, and so I'm going to do it that way. Okay? And so that gets at the what. Um, the how, though, I think is summarized in no better place than Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. Right? You remember in John 8? where the woman is caught in adultery. She's caught in the act of adultery and she's brought before Jesus and the religious leaders want to condemn her and they want to stone her because, well, actually what they want to do is they want to, they want to get Jesus to put him on the spot to trick him and to test him so that they can um, either, well, I mean, it's a long story and stuff, but what Jesus says, he basically undoes the trick and when the religious leaders leave, it's just Jesus and the woman, right? It's Jesus and the woman and Jesus looks at her and he says this, he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And this is what Jesus says. Okay, here's what Jesus says. 
Talk about the what and the how. Jesus says to a woman who was committing a sinful act, right, who was committing the sin of adultery, right, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. So what do you have there? You have both God's instruction and God's gospel. You've got both the acceptance of Jesus. Like, I don't condemn you, but now go. I want to set you free from living this kind of life. When we go to God first, that's how God's going to teach us to respond. This gives us a humble confidence in God's word that truly can offer life with God and a relationship with you. And so you focus, you you don't focus on the opposition first. You focus on God first. And then when we do this, we learn to discern. Is the third point. We learn to discern. When we have gone to God first and gotten both the truth of God and the grace of the gospel, um, then we learn to discern, right? At that point, we can engage and we can respond in the presence of God, okay? So we go into God's presence first and we engage with him. We focus on God. And when we do that, honestly, when we focus on God first, that actually saves us from two different extremes, Okay? There are some of us who care more about what we think than what the other person thinks. And then there are some of us who care more about what the other person thinks than what is appropriate. Okay? So this side breeds selfishness and narcissism. Um, this side breeds sort of doormat and codependency and abuse in relationships. Right? Both of those are extremes that need to be avoided. And when we focus on God, it sets us free both from being inordinately consumed with ourselves and our own ways, but it also keeps us from being inordinately consumed with this other person's ways. Right? Because some people, and I was talking to somebody this week um, who was in a conflict and in, in really significant opposition, and the struggle that she had was that she could see this person struggling and wanted so much for them to meet with the grace of God and to experience forgiveness and grace that she didn't want to hold them accountable for their actions. And as we went into God's presence together, as we talked about exactly what we're doing here, we talked about finding, well, what does the Bible say about these things? What does the Bible say to this situation? And how do we understand God's perspective? She realized that it was actually the most loving thing to do to hold this person accountable for what they'd done, to not just let them go. And so, um, again, when we go to God first, and we're, we, we then come from his presence to engage in opposition, Um, that enables us to develop this discernment, to develop this discernment to know how do we bring the grace and the truth of Jesus to bear on a situation. And so, um, so here's what I would encourage you to do, like the way to live out and to act out in this discernment. Um, Here's what you need to do. You need to, so, 
and actually, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I realize that often in my life, and I'm sure in yours, thinking about going to God first, it's like, well, how can we do that? Because usually the opposition sort of springs on us, right? We're just in the moment, and all of a sudden somebody says something, and now we're at, you know, we're starting to discuss, and the discussion starts to spiral downward, and now we're, you know, now I'm wrangling about words, now I'm angry, now I'm bitter, now I'm frustrated, right? Um, the good news is, here's the good news. The good news is most of the conflicts and the opposition that matters to us in our lives is part of a relationship that will be ongoing. Okay? So most of the people that you've been in opposition with or they've been in opposition with you, they are people who you're going to see them again. Okay? And so if you have done this wrong, uh, well then come back next week because Bill McCurian is actually going to talk about what to do if you haven't done this well. <clears throat> but if you've done this wrong, um, what uh, you can still, now you're not in the midst of the conflict, right? Now you're not right face-to-face -face with the opposition. You can do now what I'm going to tell you to do, okay? And I also think that the more that you bring the conflicts that you know about into the presence of God, the more he'll equip you so that when it happens again, you will be strengthened to respond in a totally different way. And so, what should we do? <clears throat> well, first, I want you to go to God. Like, so, literally, here's your homework. Your homework assignment is to think about what is the, like, what opposition have you experienced over the last month? Right, think through the kinds of, of opposition you've experienced over the last month. If you need to go back three months, that's fine. It could be in the workplace. It could be at home. It could be in your neighborhood. It could be with friends. Um, just any... Think about the opposition that you've experienced. I want you to take that opposition and go into the presence of God. Okay, I want you to spend time praying about that opposition. And I want you to ask God for discernment. I want you to ask God for the truth from his word that would help you know how to respond. You need to ask him both the what and the how. God, what in your word would teach me what I should say? And then what in your word would teach me how I should say it? So you want to go into the presence of God and say, Heavenly Father, I've got this opposition. This is the situation. You know about it, but it helps me to talk it out loud in your presence. Um, Please help me to be wise. Give me your discernment and your wisdom so that I would know what from your word speaks to this and I would know how I can share your word in this situation. And you want to listen. Right? You want to think over what are the Bible passages that you know? What are the verses that you know? You don't have to know the whole Bible, but does anything come to mind that would speak to the what or the how? And then you want to engage, right? Then you want to engage. And as you engage, um, I do want to give you one verse. It's also in the Gospel of John. It's one chapter after chapter 8. is John chapter 9. I want you to remember this because when you go into any opposition, whether you're ready for it or not, whether you've prayed it through and you know exactly what you're going to say, something's going to happen in the conversation and you're not going to know how to respond, Right? You're just not going to know everything that you're going to say. This is something that really transformed my own ability to speak to people in the midst of opposition. 
Um, this guy was healed. Jesus, he was a blind man. He was healed. Um, the religious leaders came upon this guy, and they were trying to get this guy to admit that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. Okay? And this is a guy who was blind from birth, right? 38-something years, I think. Um, so he's blind from birth. He now sees. He knows that Jesus is the one who healed him. But the religious leaders are coming, and they're saying, hey, we want you to admit that Jesus is a sinner. And here's what the guy says in John 9, verse 25. This guy says, whether Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. Here's one thing I do know. Though I was blind, now I see. Okay? And if you read this story, this is a huge, um, intense moment of opposition in this guy's life. It's like the religious leaders are shining the bright lights on him. They've got their, like, their whips and their clubs in hand. They're ready to take him out. Right? They're ready to beat him to death. And they're threatening him. And they're saying, look, tell us this, tell us this. And the guy just says, look, you've got questions. You have all kinds of issues. There's all sorts of things going on here. I don't know about any of that, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. You can show by your actions. You can show by your demeanor. You can show by both what you say and how you say it that you have been healed by God. When you go to God first and you remember His truth, when you remember how much He loves you, when you realize that in God's presence, I picture God saying, hey look, this, is, this opposition is significant to you and so it's significant to me. First, though, I want you to know, I want to tell you a story. I think this is how God would respond to us as we pray this. I want to tell you a story. There was a significant portion of your life when you were in opposition to me. And my response to your opposition was to come and to love you well. I sent my son so that he would live for you and die for you so that you and I could be reconciled. That's the good news that I have loved you with. And so you have been changed because of my love. And so we're going to talk about this opposition, but first and foremost, I see God reminding you of the gospel because that's what melts our hearts. Like that's what changes us and enables us to respond to opposition, not like the opposition. Right? That's what enables us to not just enter into the opposition with God's presence with us, but to actually be the presence of God for the other person that's opposed to us. And so we remember the story. What I love about this verse in 2 Timothy, the way this passage ends, is that Paul says this. He says in verse 19, but, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so what Paul is doing here, this is an encouragement to Timothy, it's an encouragement to us. What Paul is doing here is he's teaching us to have healthy boundaries. He's telling Timothy, look, don't do this. Don't wrangle about words. Don't engage with them the way that they're fighting. But instead, 
handle accurately the word of Christ, right? Handle God's word, the word of truth rightly. And then he says, and remember. Remember that God knows those who are his. He's saying it's not up to you to change anyone. He's saying, look, if they belong to God, God knows them, and God will work in their lives. Right? And he's saying if they really are God's, then they will depart from iniquity. Okay, and so this is a preview of week four in our series. We're going to talk about boundaries, um, but it's helpful for us because it's in the text. Paul is saying, look, this is how you're supposed to respond to opposition. This is what not to do. This is what to do. We need to remember the gospel, but then also remember that your job is simply, your job is simply to represent Jesus, right? Your job is simply to display Jesus and leave the results up to God. So let's go to him in prayer. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this word that speaks practically to us. We confess, Jesus, that we have so often fought and gone to war with words. We want to spend time now just thinking about ways we haven't done this well and that we have spoken with an intent to harm, with an intent to kill. Jesus, we're sorry for this. This does not display your goodness and your grace. This is so far from your perfect picture of neither do I condemn. You go now and sin no more. Will you give us discernment? Jesus, this week, help us to engage with opposition in a way that is radically different. Help us to remember the story that when we opposed you, you came in love. Fill our hearts with your loving grace so that we could display your love and your grace to others. And I know that we can't think of the right thing to do by ourselves. All of us need help from each other. And so I pray that in our life groups, I pray that in our discipling relationships in our church, uh, that we would go to each other and say, hey, here's my situation. Will you help me to know what God's word says about this? Jesus, help us. Give us your spirit and your wisdom so that we can discern what the real issues are, what the main things are. And we thank you for telling us and reminding us of your story. The story that when we were opposed to you, you came in love. Truly, that changes everything. Let that be the story that we live this week. We pray in your name. Amen.